Well, you can be seated at this time. This morning, we are going to be looking at two verses that really kind of set the stage and the theme for uh, the entire book of Romans. Um, if you remember, in our introduction of the book, we said that the book of Romans is a treatise on the righteousness of God. And if the book serves as a treatise on the righteousness of God, uh, the verses we're going to look at this morning really serve as Paul's main proposition. Uh, one writer said that when you study the book of Romans, you walk into a courtroom. And Paul is stating here his main idea, and then he's going to show us every human's verdict, guilty. But then he'll take the remainder of the book to explain and verify and unpack what we see in verse number 17, and that is, in the gospel, it reveals the righteousness of God from faith to faith. And similar to what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, here in verses in 16 and 17, Paul also tells us what the gospel is. Uh, but before he starts telling the Roman church what the gospel is, Paul makes probably one of his most famous statements throughout Scripture. In the beginning of verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Last week, we saw Paul's eagerness uh, to preach the gospel and to minister to and to fellowship with the church at Rome. And even though the city of Rome was wicked and it was a corrupt place, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He was proud of the gospel and he wanted to run into the wickedness of that city with the good news of Jesus Christ. He would not be ashamed of the good news that had transformed his life, and he was eager to see God use the gospel to transform people in the city of Rome as well. So let's read all of chapter 1 so we can see how verses 16 and 17 fit into the entire chapter, and then we'll begin working through those two verses. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter number 1. If you need one, there should be one on the row uh, next to you, a little black hardback copy. Feel free to use that. And follow along as we read Romans chapter number 1. The Bible says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for, for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you also who are in, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, call the saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve in the Spirit and telling the good news about his Son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I may have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all, ungod, against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also lived natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, invent inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. Father, I pray that it would be a proclamation of good news, healing, and liberty. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our minds to understand and contemplate wondrous things from your word. Lord, help us to see what you have inspired for us now thousands of years later. I pray that you would give us, your church, life and strength through your word this morning. And I pray that your church would delight in your instruction and that it would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we would be like righteous trees planted by flowing streams, bearing fruit to bring you glory. Father, we also want to lift up those um, in Buffalo who lost loved ones yesterday. Lord, I pray for healing for those families. It was such a senseless act of violence and wickedness. So Lord, we pray for healing for those families. We pray for healing for, those, for that community. 
Father, for those who woke up this morning and felt a little less safe because of the color of their skin, I pray for peace. I pray that you would give our brothers and sisters peace of mind, peace of heart. And I pray that through this tragedy, many would come to know you. And Lord, we also pray that justice would be quickly served. And that in moments like this, when our hearts are heavy and our hearts are overwhelmed by the injustice the injustices of this world, that we would fix our mind, that we would fix our hearts on you, and that we would long for and look forward towards and strive for the moment when you will make every wrong right, and justice and righteousness will be throughout our entire world. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So Paul has told us that he is not ashamed of the gospel. And the reason for his not being ashamed of the gospel serves as the theme for this entire book. Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel, first of all, is the power of God for salvation. Now, there would have been a lot of reasons um, from an earthly perspective Paul could have been ashamed of the gospel. Uh, In the Jewish culture, they looked down on those that believed in Jesus and they ridiculed Paul for it. Um, In the Greek or Gentile culture, specifically in Rome, They would have mocked this belief that it was only one God and that this one God came down as a man, as a servant, and then died on a cross. That would have been the opposite of what in their minds was power. But Paul said, despite all of that, I am not ashamed of the gospel because, first of all, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul tells us how he was treated because of the gospel. In verse uh, 13 of 1 Corinthians 4, he says, When we were slandered, we responded graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. If you look at those words in the original language, it's actually much more crude and gross than even just garbage and what we think of as scum. Paul says, this is how we are being treated because of our faith. In Acts 21, we see that his own Jewish people wanted to kill Paul because they thought he was a heretic for his beliefs. But even though he was regarded as the filth of the earth, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is because he knew its power from firsthand experience. Paul knew what it was to be radically changed because of the good news of Jesus. And he was not ashamed. Instead, he gloried in the gospel as the power of God for salvation. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ would be emptied of its effect. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. So Paul's helping us understand that when the world looks at the gospel, they see it as foolishness, but we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel because we know it is the power of God. He said later in that same chapter, Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Paul was so convinced of the gospel's power. He said, I don't need to dress it up. I don't need to seek to use eloquent wisdom, human wisdom, when I'm presenting it. I don't need to try to make it more palatable for my pagan audience. The gospel is like a lion. It just needs to be let out of its cage. And because of its power, I don't need to be ashamed. The gospel has the power to transform a person from death to life. 
The gospel is the world's only hope for salvation. The word here uh, for power is dunamis. It means might and power or strength. Sometimes in the New Testament it's translated as miracle. This is where we get the word dynamite. It's this explosive, amazing power. That is the gospel. Now when a person gets saved, it doesn't always feel like fireworks are going off, so to speak, but it does forever change a person. When a person believes the gospel, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in their heart that God had raised him from the dead, that person goes from death to life, and they now have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They now have access to God's grace, which empowers them to live in a way that is consistent with who they now are in Jesus. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is God's mighty plan by which his power goes forth to save all who would believe. This is not man's power. This is not society's power. The the Roman Empire was obsessed with power. The world knew Rome for its power, for its military power, for its intellectual power. And Paul says this is not that power. This is not the power of Rome. This was and is God's power. And it does what no other power on earth can do. It makes people right with God. No one is so far gone that they cannot be saved by God's power as we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might be here today and you say, Pastor Nick, but you don't understand. I've blown it. I have ruined my life. Sin has wrecked me. You don't know how far I've gone. And that's true. I don't. But friend, what I do know is that nobody can sin more than the power of God can redeem. This is the power of God. One writer said Paul was taking to sinful Rome the one message that had the power to change men's lives. He had seen the gospel work in other wicked cities such as Corinth or Ephesus and he was confident that it would work in Rome. It had transformed his own life and he knew it would transform the lives of others. Friend, the gospel can transform your life as well. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you can do so today. And scripture tells us that you will be saved from the penalty of your sin. You will be made right with God. When a person believes the gospel of Jesus, God forgives their sin. They become his child and the Holy Spirit of God moves into that person. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. This dynamic powerful gospel can change a person's destiny forever. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. But Paul also shows us that the gospel is for everyone. Look at the last half of Romans one sixteen. The verse says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. Now when Paul says the gospel is for everyone, He adds a qualifier and he also adds a pattern. The gospel does not announce that everyone in the world is automatically saved. That's universalism. Universalism is the belief that everyone will go to heaven regardless of what they believe. That's not what the gospel does. The qualifier we see Paul gives here is to those who believe. A person must believe the gospel. A person must believe in the good news of Jesus. A person must confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. 
The gospel is the good news declaration that God became a man, lived a perfect life that we could never live as the Messiah, as the promised one. Then he died for our sins, but three days after his death, he rose from the grave conquering sin and death. That is the gospel. But in order to experience that dynamic power, you must believe. Paul will say later in the book of Romans in chapter 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth, or if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We want to be clear that the gospel doesn't automatically get everyone into heaven. But we also want to be equally clear that anyone can believe. The gospel is incredibly inclusive and exclusive at the same time. You have to believe it. It's exclusive. There's no other way to get to God. There's no other way to be made right with God. There's no other way to get to heaven. But it's incredibly inclusive in that it's for everyone. Anyone can call upon the name of the Lord. Everyone can believe. Paul says this good news is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. A person's past sins does not disqualify them from believing the gospel. Again, you might be here and you say, but I'm just not good enough. Friend, that's the whole point. (laughs) That's why to many the gospel is offensive. Because it says we're all guilty. We all need to be saved. We all stand in need. We're going to see that very clearly starting next week as we move into the rest of chapters 1, 2, and 3. But it also tells us that your past sins do not disqualify you from believing the gospel. A person's past belief does not disqualify them from believing the gospel. A person's political affiliation does not disqualify them from believing the gospel. A person's worldview does not disqualify them from believing the gospel. A person's ethnicity does not disqualify them from believing the gospel. A person's social or economic status does not disqualify them from believing the gospel. Warren Wearsby said, God does not ask men to behave in order to be saved, but to believe. Believe and you will be saved. It is faith in Christ that saves the sinner. He went on to say, eternal life in Christ is one gift that is suitable for all people, no matter what their need may be or what their station in life. If you are a human being, you can believe in the good news concerning Jesus and be saved. The gospel is for everyone. We also want to be abundantly clear that there is no other condition for salvation besides believing. You have to believe it. But it's for everyone. And there's no other condition, there's no other qualification, there's no other hoops you have to jump through. Just believe and be saved. Dr. Thomas Constable helps us by saying, Paul said nothing about our having to do anything in addition, such as undergoing baptism, joining a church, pledging commitment, etc. The issue is believing the good news and trusting Christ. Either a person does or does not do so. To quote Yoda, do or do not, that's it. (laughs) The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. Now, I also want to state that this is the only way to be made right with God. There are not many roads that all lead to the same heaven. In our day and age, it, the, the, the common thinking is, well, you find your truth, I'll find my truth, and, and it doesn't matter. As long as we all genuinely and sincerely pursue our own truths, we'll, we'll all be okay. But the gospel is not a matter of your truth and my truth, and we each need to find our own truth and we'll be good. Believing in the good news concerning Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. Paul says it is to everyone, this amazing, dynamic, powerful good news. 
But Paul also gives us, interestingly, a pattern. He says, it's to everyone, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So the pattern we see Paul presents here is to the Jews first. Now the gospel was special to the Israelite people. The gospel was the declaration of their long-awaited Messiah. This good news had been prophesied about in their law and in their prophets. This is what they were hoping for. This is what they were longing for. We see throughout the Old Testament that God chose the Jewish people to be the nation through whom the gospel would reach the entire world. God picked Israel to be his instrument of blessing the entire world. Uh, We see this in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. Exodus 19 also tells us in verses 5 and 6. Now if you carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my possession out of all the peoples. There we see God electing the nation of Israel. We see him choosing them, setting them apart. He says, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. God selected this little nation to be his special ambassador to the world. The Jewish people were also the first to have the opportunity to believe in the gospel. One writer said, not that the gospel was any more adapted to Jews than to others, but to them had been committed the oracles of God. That is, the word of God. They had received the word of God. They had known for thousands of years that this gospel was coming. The writer went on to say, the the Messiah had come through them. They had the law. They had the temple. They had the service of God. And it was natural that the gospel should be proclaimed to them before it was to the Gentiles. This was in order... This was the order in which the gospel was actually preached to the world. First the Jews, then to the Gentiles. That was Albert Barnes who said that. Jesus even did this. We see in John chapter number 1, at the very beginning of this gospel, he came to his own first, but his own people did not receive him. Now, despite the fact that Paul was dubbed the apostle to the Gentiles, throughout his ministry, he would literally, whenever he could, preach the gospel to the Jewish people first. Whenever he entered a new town or a new province, he would go into the synagogue and preach the gospel there first. Or he would go look for Jewish gatherings where there wasn't a synagogue and preach the gospel to them first. We see this throughout the book of Acts, but we see it specifically in Acts 13, verses 45 through 47. The Bible says, But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was saying, insulting him. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Then Paul says, wise, or he goes on to say, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, we would read that, and we might be tempted to think that Paul's like, okay, I'm not going to the Jews first anymore. But you'll see, despite the fact that Paul and his team said, we're turning to the Gentiles, he would still preach the gospel to the Jewish people first. In fact, right up until the very end of his ministry, Paul practiced this model wherever he, wherever he could. We read about this in the last chapter of Acts, Acts 28. Uh, verses 16 and 17 tell us when he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So this is when Paul was under house arrest. Uh, he was living with a guard, chained to a Roman guard. Uh, but he had this house with him himself and the Roman guard. And after three days of being there, he called together the leaders of the Jews. Because Paul was under house arrest, he couldn't get to them. So what he did was he called them to him. And in Acts 28, we see Paul is giving them the gospel. But in verses 25 through 28, we see that they were disagreeing among themselves. And they began to leave after Paul made one statement. 
the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah when he said, go to these people and say, you will always be listening but never understanding. You will always be looking but never perceiving. For the hearts of these people have grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So as we've seen, there was a lot of different reasons that the Jewish people were given the gospel first. And throughout the book of Acts, Paul intentionally would seek out his fellow Israelites and give them a chance to believe. But ultimately, it was prophesied that they would initially reject the Messiah so that the gospel could then go to the Gentiles. But as we're going to see later in the book of Romans, mainly in chapters 9, 10, and 11, this rejection is not permanent. God has preserved himself a remnant. Now as we move into verse 17, we get right into the meat of the main proposition of the book of Romans. By starting verse 17 with the word for, Paul shows us that what he's about to say is connected to what he previously said. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Why? Because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Which leads us to our third thought this morning. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, Paul again gives us an important qualifier. He's not talking about man's righteousness that was revealed in this good news. He saw the origin, we saw the origin of the word gospel a few weeks ago. A herald for the emperor would come and declare some good news. The Greek word evangelion was not an uncommon word used in Roman culture because uh, a herald for the emperor would, or an ambassador for the emperor would come into the city, come into the town and proclaim good news. Often this good news would be designed to make the emperor look good, no doubt proclaiming his own righteousness. But what Paul does by using this word evangelion, using this word gospel, taking this concept of good news, he shows us what the best kind of good news that could ever be really is. The good news Paul is talking about here is different. This isn't the emperor gaslighting his people into thinking he's a good guy. (laughs) This good news declares God's righteousness. This is perfect divine rightness. Everything our hearts long for and crave for, when we see injustice and we long for it to be made right, we find that justice, we find that righteousness in the gospel. This rightness, this righteousness, it comes from heaven. It originates in God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Let that sink in for a moment. When you believe the good news, when you believe the gospel, you become the righteousness of God. All that is right about God is now yours in Jesus Christ. David Dockery said the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Righteousness denotes the right standing God gives to believers. Believers are justified through faith and by faith, and this is important, but never on the account of faith. Faith is not itself our righteousness. Rather, 
Faith is the outstretched empty hand that receives righteousness by receiving Christ. Paul's concept of righteousness or justification is a complete and total work of God. We can do nothing to earn it. So it is through faith that we receive righteousness. But it's not, faith, faith is not this good work that, well, if I can have good enough faith, then I can be saved. It's just this empty cry of desperation that says, God, I've got nothing and I believe in you. I cast it all on you. And what we see in the gospel is the gospel shows us how we can be made right with God. We don't receive the righteousness of God through our efforts. We don't receive the righteousness of God through church membership or through cleaning up our lives or through leading a generous life. All of those things are good things, that we should pursue those things. We can and we should do those things, but those are not how God makes us righteous. Those are not how God makes us right with him. We pursue those things because God has made us right with him. He makes us righteous when we place our faith in the good news of Jesus. The righteousness God requires from us is the righteousness that God has provided for us in Jesus. Romans 3.26, God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. God's righteousness is revealed to us in the gospel and we experience that righteousness by faith. When Paul says from faith to faith, he's not talking about degrees of faith. He's not talking about, well, if there's, there's certain levels that you can get to. He is emphasizing that the entire process of being declared righteous comes to us from start to finish by faith. Some say that this means from beginning to end, the entire Christian life is one of faith. Paul is simply making it abundantly clear the doctrine that people are justified by faith. This isn't our good works. This isn't our effort. This isn't, well, I went through and I did all the right catechisms. Again, those things are all good, but none of those things save you. God has never looked down on any person other than Jesus and said, oh, yeah, you're, you're good enough. <laughs> it's through his righteousness in the gospel, and when we believe in it, God justifies us. We see that God's plan for justifying men and women is revealed in the gospel And this plan is by faith. And the benefits of this plan are extended to all who have faith or all that believe. Then he closes out the main idea. And as he does so, he quotes the prophet Habakkuk. He says, the righteous will live by faith. He's quoting the last half of Habakkuk 2.4 that says, but the righteous one will live by faith. The life of a believer is a life of faith. When Habakkuk wrote this in the Old Testament, the nation of Judah was facing judgment for their sins, and God had revealed to Habakkuk that the Chaldeans would be the instrument of his punishment. But as he's revealing that, he's saying, look, the nation of Judah, it's going it's, it's to be punished. Like, he's not giving any qualifiers. If you turn from your sin, I'll spare you. God's like, no, you're going to be punished for your sins, but I'm not leaving you without hope. He says, the righteous one will live by faith. There was hope for the individual who would hold firm their trust in God. Yes, the Chaldeans were going to come. But ultimately, they would not have the last word. The pride of the Chaldeans would come to a woeful end. And I use that word intentionally because as you read Habakkuk, he issues a lot of woes to the Chaldeans. They would come to a woeful end. But all those who humbly trust in God will gain life. God's plan for his people has always been that they would live a life 
of faith. And Paul uses this Old Testament narrative to demonstrate, to illustrate, and to prove that God's plan for his people has always been that they would live a life of faith depending on God. This was the core of Paul's message. And we're going to see throughout the rest of the book how God is able to declare sinners righteous because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. How does that work? How is that possible? That's what the rest of the book of Romans will unpack for us. So we've seen this verse and how this verse serves as the main theme or the the main proposition for the entire book of Romans. Verse 17 also served to impact the man who would go on to impact the world. When Martin Luther, who was, was searching for God, he was a Catholic monk, and while he was serving as a monk for a long time, he thought that the righteousness of God was a condemning righteousness. He hated it, and he hated God. He, he says that in his writings. I, he, he hated it because he felt like no matter what I do, no matter how good of a monk I am, no matter how hard I try, I can never meet God's perfect standard of righteousness. And seeing the righteousness of God as God's standard of judgment often drove Martin Luther to despair. However, little by little, he began to understand, and finally the day came when he saw that God gives us his own righteousness to make man righteous through faith. And it was this verse that lit the fire in his heart to believe that. But now, the righteousness of God, he said, has been manifested apart from the law, through, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And when Luther believed this, his life was turned upside down. In the library of Rodestalt, Germany, if you're German, Paul, I apologize for butchering that. <laughs> In the library there, there's a glass case that holds a letter that was written by Luther's youngest son, Dr. Paul Luther. That letter reads, in the year 1544, my dearest father, in the presence of us all, narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come to the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. He said it happened in this way. As he repeated his prayers on the Lateran staircase, the words of the prophet, prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind, the just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as his chief foundation of all his doctrine. And with this understanding, Luther went on to start the Protestant Reformation and withstand the entire world in his time. Because of the gospel, you can stand sinless before God. This lit such a fire in Martin Luther that he literally turned the world upside down. And even in secular schools, we learn about the Protestant Reformation. It's so powerful. It is so life-changing. Think about it. It is possible for you to stand sinless before God. If you're in Christ, that is your position in him, sinless before God. Just sit with that for a minute. What a powerful display of God. What gift of grace that he would give us his righteousness. It is possible for you to know that you have eternal life. You can be free from trying to be good enough and trying to make it to heaven on your own. Like Martin Luther, you don't have to live afraid of God because you don't measure up. Amen. You don't have to live in that type of fear. In fact, the Bible tells us perfect love casts out that type of fear. 
you can believe in the good news of Jesus and walk in new life. And for those of us that are in Christ, for those of us who have believed, let me encourage you to never lose the wonder of the gospel. This is the power of God revealed to us. And when the reality of the gospel of Jesus comes alive in our minds and alive in our hearts, we, like Paul, can stand unashamed. For my friends that are here, if you're watching online and you're not in Christ or you're, you're considering what it means to be a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to place your faith and trust in him. Believe in Jesus. Believe in the good news that he lived a perfect life that you could never live that he willingly took the penalty of your sin and now freely gives you his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us according to the riches of your glory to be strengthened with power in our inner beings through your spirit. I pray that you would dwell in our hearts through faith. Lord, I pray if there's any listening this morning that have not placed their faith and trust in you, that they would so that you could dwell in them, that your Holy Spirit could permanently indwell in them and that they would be rooted in faith, that they could begin the life of living by faith. And I pray that we who are in Christ would be rooted and firmly established in your love, that we would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of your love. Lord, when there's so many competing voices in our minds and so many competing voices in our feeds and in our heads, I pray that we would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. I pray that your Holy Spirit would constantly awaken us to the love of the Father so that we could be filled with all your fullness. That your love would become the, the most powerful reality in our lives to the point that our lives are changed, that we're constrained, and that we're just eternally different. I pray that as your Holy Spirit awakens our heart to your love, we would believe that you have given us everything we need to be witnesses of Jesus. We ask this because you're able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to this power that works in us. To you be glory in this church and in the global church.